Hi, once again, a genuine and very warm welcome to our latest Generation podcast. The podcast um, that is produced by Generation. We are the mission arm of the Free Church of Scotland, operating here from Edinburgh, Scotland. And it's just an opportunity when we can talk to a variety of really interesting people who are involved in mission at different levels. And today my guest is Michael Prest. Michael is the director of UFM Worldwide, a very well-known mission organisation started in 1931 with 200 mission partners in 35 countries sent by at least 90 churches. Michael, welcome. Are these facts up to date? Thank you, David. They are pretty much about yeah, about 210 mission partners, uh, 35 countries around the world. And I think the mission family itself, very international these days, I think 27 different nationalities in the UFM missionary family. Yes. Nice to be with you, David. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Now, I know a little bit about you. I've met you a couple of times. I know that your background is pharmacy management. But can you just tell our listeners, many of whom will not know you, just a little bit about yourself, family and faith? Thanks so much. Yes. Um, Yeah, I was born in Darlington, northeast England, uh, raised in a Christian home. I came to faith through a youth ministry uh, called Young Life, linked to beach missions at the age of 17. Very grateful for that. Um, input from those guys at that time of course went to university in Nottingham uh, studied pharmacy later some management stuff and uh, yeah I guess during that time at at university in the first few years after studies especially under the ministry of a guy called Andy Gemmell who some of you might know at Cornhill Scotland these days um, yeah really began to be challenged about thinking about ministry into the longer term Um, had the privilege to go to Indonesia in the year 2000 uh, I was a single guy at the time, went with OMF, spent a year uh, working through pharmacy uh, with another British um, family out there involved in youth ministry. Um, came back really from that time, really challenged that I ought to be willing to, to go anywhere for the Lord, really. I saw huge spiritual and material needs that I'd maybe I'd not seen in the same way before. Um, and I guess if I'm honest, when I, when I came back, I, I realised a need for willingness, but I'm not sure I was quite willing at that stage. I was enjoying my time with uh, Boots, enjoying the pharmacy management world. Um, but over a period of time, yeah, God moved my heart on those things, largely through yeah, working alongside church leaders in Nottingham uh, and uh, taking a number of trips again to Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia and also Thailand. Uh, married to Rachel, we got married in 2006 and we have four children. Uh, we spent some time serving ourselves together as a family in Southeast Asia, and also as part of the uh, ministry team at, at Beeston Free. So that's a, a quick snapshot. Okay, okay. So your background is um, pharmacy and management. Mm-hmm. Some folk would say, you know, your life would have been better spent going to a majority world country and just working in pharmacy, developing that. Mm-hmm. Just forget about the gospel stuff. How would you react to that? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, um, I actually had an opportunity just at the time I was leaving my full-time work and going to work at church to go to Thailand to work with Boots. And um, I guess I grappled with that question for quite a long time. You know, uh, it wouldn't be wrong for a Christian to go and work in pharmacy, whether that was in a majority world context where there wasn't much established pharmacy infrastructure or whether that was to go to a country like Thailand where there was a very established pharmacy infrastructure. Uh, we need Christian people in the workplace, firm and believe in that. Um I guess for me, for me myself, yeah, God, 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 a sense that God moved my heart uh, for gospel ministry. And um, whether I was going to work in pharmacy or 
work in a Bible college as we ended up doing in Southeast Asia. Um, the priority is there for all of us, isn't it, to proclaim the gospel uh, to the nations. And uh, sometimes we can make too, too arbitrary a distinction between the secular uh, field and the, the Christian ministry world. Um, yeah, if someone had said to me, um, why, why don't you just go and invest in pharmacy? I guess I'd want to respond, well, that's a, that would be a good thing for a Christian to do. Uh, but in doing that, I'd want to be very intentional uh, about seeing the gospel shared with people, uh, hopefully disciples made and churches encouraged and established. Um, that's how I'd probably try and answer that question. What do you think about the Lausanne statement? I think it originated in John Stott that mm -hmm. um, mission is taking the whole gospel to the whole world. Would you sit comfortably with that as a work? Ah, yeah, the Lausanne statement. I mean, many, many, many books and articles have been written <laughs> haven't they, about the Lausanne statements. Uh, and I guess if we trace the history of what's happened as a result of that and where where the debates in mission are today, you see it's still a very live issue, really. Um Yes, a few things to say. I mean, personally speaking, I think that we need to be careful to recover or to emphasise um, disciple-making in mission. Uh, not that um, social involvement in any sense is not part of our calling in the Christian life. Of course it is. You know, in the part of Southeast Asia we lived in, uh, living next to, right in next to the urban poor community, it would be total madness just to go in there and, um, you know, put up my open-air preaching board and preach the gospel and uh, neglect to understand the fact that my neighbours, some of whom were living on a dollar a day or they couldn't afford to send their kids to hospital when they got dengue fever. Um, so for me, it's an issue of centrality, I think. Um, of course, we need to be um, careful to respond to the humanitarian issues of the day. Um, but on its own, that on its own, I think if we're left with that as our definition of mission, we're, we're lacking the, the fundamental uh, thing in the mix and that's where I think perhaps some of the discussions have gone down uh, a road that I wouldn't be comfortable with um, perhaps discussions that have ended up saying that well everything we do is mission I'd probably want to uh, argue against that well I, I would want to argue against that I think sometimes maybe we confuse um, worship and mission of course everything we do in our life is our worship to the Lord it's it all has a valid place um, but there's something very specific about the mission that God has sent us on. And I think we need to recover that specificity. And I think, um, I guess, the Young and Gilbert's book, What is the Mission of the Church? Uh, I'm sympathetic to a large extent with, with what they say about the fact that the one who has authority to send on the mission has authority to, to define what the mission is. Um, and so therefore, I would, I would go towards those New Testament Great Commission passages to, to find the sp something specific about the mission that Jesus sends us on. Yeah, I, I want to unpack that a little bit. I mean, I've been doing a lot of thinking recently about language. And mm -hmm. Would you say that we were far too conversionist orientated in our language? In other words, mission is about just getting folk across the line, getting folk saved. Now, conversion and saved are both biblical words. They are great yeah. words. Yeah. I am being one perhaps not one, but my eyes have been opening more and more to the discipleship uh, word. That, I heard, I mean, <laughs> you, you said that, you know, Jesus was the ultimate mission caller. Mm -hmm. Do you think we need to really emphasize that word discipleship, which is not just, you know, getting folk away from eternal perdition, but it's really leading them into life everlasting and eternal? 
Sure, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think we, we have a strap line in uh, UFM. We say we're here to support churches in making disciples of all nations. I mean, in mission world out there, you see all kinds of extremes, don't you? Um, and one of the extremes you see in mission world is uh, an obsession with statistics and people needing to report, you know, how many people have been baptised this year, how many people have raised their hand in a convention or a, a meeting or a mission. Um, and sometimes that's linked to an unhelpful understanding of if, if we can go to the task, inverted commas, you know, the idea that it's it's ultimately down to us to make sure that every um, people group has access to the gospel. And once we've had a few people raise their hand in each people group, then the task will be completed and we can move on or, you know, or Christ will return. Um, when we talk about discipleship, we're talking much more holistically, aren't we? And I think we 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 then remove this this odd distinction between the proclamation of the gospel and caring for people um, practically. Um, because if we're trying to see disciples made, we're spending time with people and we're living life side by side and, and we're learning from those we serve alongside. Um, and like I said before, we can't serve in a place like Southeast Asia, simply preach the gospel, look for a conversion, yet not be bothered about the fact that people haven't um, got a livelihood or are struggling with their health. Uh, the, the two must be responded to together. Yes, there's a few things I'd say in response. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Unless I'd be misunderstood. When I talk about conversionism, I'm not talking about less than that, but what I'm arguing for is more than that. But let's move on to other stuff. Uh, you served and you attended Beeston Free, uh, Beeston Free Church in Nottingham. It's it's well known as having a great cross-cultural mission culture. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experience at Beeston? And maybe we can unpack that afterwards just to talk about the various marks of a local church that would have a very high value and an effective ministry cross-culturally. Sure yeah thank you. Yeah, I mean we were personally myself and my wife Rachel very influenced by our time at Beeston Free. We were there over 20 years first as students and then uh, regular members of the congregation involved in various ministries uh, growing in our faith during that time and then myself eventually joining the staff team as one of the ministers um we're so grateful for those years and um as i said before particularly the year i graduated um andy gemmel came to join the church as the minister and um there were a number of aspects of his ministry that were striking but i think one one particularly was the idea that to think about giving your energies to full-time christian ministry as being a normal pursuit uh for a christian that was a really new concept to me um, I'd grown up with parents who supported missionaries. Uh, they hosted mission prayer meetings, even one or two summers. My dad was a French and German teacher, would go to, to Germany. He'd, he'd teach on evangelistic um, English camps, all that kind of stuff. But I looked at, at world mission and thought, well, that's a noble thing to be involved in, but it's not really for me. Um, I kind of thought it was an unusual thing to pursue rather than just a normal thing to consider. Um, and I remember, um, cut a very long story short, um, we had the privilege of sending a, a family to Greece. They're still actually serving with UFM and IFES in Greece today in Athens. Been out there nearly 15 years. Uh, it was the first family we'd sent as a church for nearly a generation, really. And um, for many of us, therefore, the commissioning day felt like a really, really significant day. And uh, Andy said something at the service that really st- st- um, stuck with me over the years. He said... The danger of today is we we make this into a really unusual thing and we build it up into something it shouldn't be. He said today 
these people are setting off to do something which is very ordinary for Christian people to do. And in sending them, we are doing something very ordinary that a Christian church should be involved in. Uh, and that, I think, really began to set the tone for what followed as the mission culture in the church developed. Yeah, uh, do you think the idea of missionary as hero is a two-edged sword? Oh, I, I mean, the missionary as hero, uh, uh, I mean, I'm not even sure if it's got two edges. In the, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not entirely unhelpful, but it's, it's, it's largely unhelpful, isn't it? Um, there's a huge tradition, isn't there, in Christian ministry of, uh, in a helpful way, as we look in, in mission, especially of, of reading our, our mission biographies. Um, and some of them are a bit balanced, aren't they? But many of them, many of them aren't. And um, we, we, we lose the reality that, that missionaries are, are regular people from regu- regular backgrounds and that the power is in the gospel, not in the people that happen to have been sent. Um, so I mean, even in without being too controversial, in, in UFM's history, I mean, UFM began really with a, a sad split. If you go back to the 30s, there were very contentious times involving AIM, UFM, and what now is WEC, um, really largely relating to CT Stud. And without going into all the minutiae of what happened and not wanting to speak wrongly about anybody, um, there are aspects of CT Stud's history that probably don't make it into most of the biographies. Um, so we need to be very careful. I think in the modern era as well, the danger is still there that we we elevate those who head off and um, everyone else who stays behind is in the in the second division. There's certainly been times in my own life where, in a in a, in a right sense of wanting to be willing to to do anything for the Lord, I, I wrongly thought, well, I'm I'm doing the I'm doing the most noble thing here. And uh, there's been times when I've had to be humbled uh, because of that. I think. Yeah, I wish there were more biographies of real mission lives. I mean, C.T. Studd uh, is and was a a great man, and we will enjoy great conversations with him in the new heavens and the new earth. But every single mission or missionary is, you know, made by flawed women and men. Um, I mean, there's so so much stuff here. I feel there's a three-hour conversation, (laughs) possibly. Can okay. I say a bit more about about the Beeston days and just um, of course you can yeah I was going to move on to that yeah how they, just how how things developed a bit there I mean um, it was a, it was a special time in in, in the in the life of the church so we we'd had this experience of this family uh, really coming forward to us as elders at the time saying we really feel called into mission that wasn't a surprise to us but then the particular opportunity in Greece opened up. Uh, so they came to us, we spoke to them in an elders meeting, and as a group of elders, we were, we were just thrilled, really, totally delighted, right behind them. They were great, a great family, gift, clearly gifted for that kind of ministry, involved in student ministry locally in Nottingham. Um, then a few, you know, a few days after the elders meeting, um, it soon became clear that whilst we were very enthusiastic and excited about this, this venture, we didn't really know what to do next. Um, by which I mean, because we hadn't sent anyone for quite a while, there were lots of practical practical questions that began to be raised. Uh, we didn't really have answers for them. Um, so I remember a time a few weeks after we'd all agreed as elders that we wanted to support this this dear family. They began to ask questions of various ones of us on the on the leadership team. You know, what about preparation? What about financial support? What about timing? And out of good intentions, various different ones of us gave various different answers. <laughs> 
And um, we soon realized that we needed to uh, think through some of these practicalities ahead of time, uh, not just for the sake of this family, but for others who might follow. Um, so that really made us begin to think about not just the practicalities of sending people, but the whole the whole issue of um, normalizing a kind of a world mission culture, if that's the right expression, in the local church. Um, we put together, obviously, a mission policy that many churches have that kind of thing um, to try to bring some consistency into the process whilst retaining flexibility for different people in different situations. Um, but we tried to think a bit more broad as well. Okay, how do we how do we raise the the volume, if you like, about world mission in the church? How do we communicate to the wider church family that this family, the Clarks, going to Greece, they're not missionary heroes; they're really normal. Um, and actually, the thing that really helped us probably the mo- the thing that helped us most in church life to um, develop that missions culture was was actually sending the Clarks because. I guess historically we had sent people, they were, they were less frequent in their going, which meant we'd accumulated over the years a number of people to support as a church that we, we knew of but didn't really know as well. Certainly the wider congregation didn't know. We hadn't sent them. Yet when we sent the clerks, we knew them. People loved them. Uh, they'd served alongside people in different um, areas of church life. They were friends with many people across the congregation. They'd begun to raise a family alongside others beginning to raise a family um, and so when they went it was a very natural process for, for people to get behind them and to support them and I think also in them going most of us could see they were very normal uh, like the rest of us they had their strengths they had their weaknesses and therefore again it, it normalized the idea of other people going because they thought look if they can go well maybe we can go so that was a very interesting time and then in the well, I guess the seven, eight years that followed, about a dozen other long-term missionaries were sent. And now, even to today, the, the current senior minister, George Hawkins, very, very mission-minded, very close to the detail in terms of mission sending from the church. They're continuing to send as a church. It's really, really thrilling to see. And are, Beeson, uh, are most of the missionaries linked to UFM? Um, not all, but a, a good chunk are. So um, I think I'm right in saying that eight of the long-term missionaries are linked to UFM. Uh, we've got a lady, I say we, not, <laughs> we're not a beast in these days, but still feels like home in many ways. Um, there's a lady preparing to go with AIM. There's another good friends of ours, a couple serving with SIM. Um, so th- I think there's a there's always a need for a breadth and range of agencies, isn't there? People yeah. have more experience in different places and kinds of ministries, but there is a strong link with, with UFM, certainly. Sure. Yeah, you often find that churches do have links. Um, up in, in Scotland, the Tron is a big OMF church. I was minister yeah. at a church called Smithton. It's kind of AIM. Um, yeah. these, these are interests all over the place. Now, I'm I'm really interested in the place in today's church life of a missionary society. Um, yes. Let me declare an interest here in, in Generation and the Free Church of Scotland we will not do any international ministry apart from partnership with a mission society these days yeah. or a local church. So can you just expand a wee bit on the role of mission societies, given that both you and I are big church people? Yeah. We agree yeah. that church is God's you know, way of spreading the gospel through churches. Yeah. 
So mission organizations, societies by their nature are parachurch. Tell us how they both work together. Yeah, thank you. It's such a crucial question, I think. Um, you could argue that historically, at times, mission agencies, and this, this is this generalisation, so forgive me, but historically, we've all seen a situation where mission agencies, um, in a sense, they swap positions with the church, and the mission agency stands over the church and says to churches, uh, who have you got in your church that can join our organisation to fulfil our strategy or our goal in a particular place? Um, and I guess, yeah, my convictions would strongly uh, challenge that approach and say no 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 the church is the the place that has the privilege and responsibility to send the local church and agencies are here to serve local churches to say to churches okay who have you got in your congregation i.e elders particularly um in whom you've already identified gifting for cross-cultural mission in whom you're already trying to see that gifting develop and how can we help you to, to send them? So the church are going to send them. How can we help them in that process? How can we help them maybe think about training options? How can we help them be placed maybe short-term somewhere where they can see those gifts and skills develop and be challenged and tested? Um, how can we help the church to um, send those people well and so see them placed maybe long-term in an appropriate context, whether that's serving alongside other UFM workers, whether it's serving alongside a national church or a uh, multi-agency team how can we help the church go on supporting well into the into the medium term the longer term and all the different issues that throws up how can we help the church receive people back in the future and um, so to me that's the that's the right way around and um actually i think agencies that that take that approach and we hope we hope ufm continues to take that approach it's certainly been the case for many years now in our intentions Agencies that, that put the church at the heart of things, they're the agencies that um, are seeing more people come forward for mission. And the agencies where um, the structure kind of drives the agenda uh, and, it, and necessarily almost asks churches for people to, to continue to, to keep the structure of the organisation going, they're the agencies that are declining, sadly. Okay, talking again specifically about UFM, if you look at the range of works that you're involved in in countries, you know, there's Moldova, Uganda, Sierra Leone, Thailand, Brazil, Ireland, you know, there doesn't seem to be a link. Can you just outline what your thinking is and what your basic strategy? Yeah, good question, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right, you could, you could look at our organization and say well you don't have a strategy at all you know what's your plan for this or that country how many people do you want to see raised up for this or that ministry and the answer to that question is we don't have any plans like that we have no numerical targets we have no plan for a particular country or people group but our strategy again is, is the local church if i can put it that way um we we say again as i mentioned earlier that we want to support churches in making disciples of all nations um so really we're willing to send uh, people anywhere to do anything within a couple of obvious parameters namely uh, they need to be involved in disciple making in some sense um, and then we say we have two areas of priority uh, in the work one is to see the gospel go to the least reached which links very much to our history as the unevangelized fields mission um, and the second is to uh, support what we might call under-resourced churches around the world i.e uh, people sent from churches um to other parts of the world but perhaps the church has been growing and they're asking for 
partnership from the outside uh, for people to go and serve under their leadership at their direction. Um, so across UFM these days, would say about half of UFM workers are working amongst the least reached and half are working uh, in that second area, um, serving and supporting existing churches at their invitation. Okay, you, you've been thinking about cross-cultural mission for a long time. Um, can you just maybe highlight one or two of the big issues today in cross-cultural mission? Again, you hinted at one just a minute ago when you said that local churches invite. So clearly, I mean, it's obvious that the old colonial model is one of the things that had to go. Um, what in your mind are the other big issues of global mission today? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think um, obviously what the most one of the most pressing things is understanding the changing context, and um, there's definitely a greater awareness of that these days. Uh, how we respond to that is probably the challenge. So, what I'm trying to say is, as we see the church in the majority world, as the majority will continue to grow very rapidly relative to the church in the West, there are obviously big implications for the involvement of Westerners in world mission. Um, doing some studies at the moment actually on the side with with ETS and um, um, well, the thing I'm trying to think about there is what's the place of a largely western mission organization like UFM in encouraging the sending of missionaries from churches in places like Indonesia. Um, there are more missionaries sent from the majority world than there are missionaries sent from the west these days um, and there are some huge issues to grapple with for example um, we've seen historically many Western mission agencies become international and they, they start offices of their mission in other parts of the world. Um, what are the pros and cons of that? Uh, to what extent does that help or hinder the sending of national believers from majority world churches? Um, so there's some of the questions I guess we're grappling with within UFM and personally also. Um, so that's a big area of... of um, interest in mission at the moment and then I guess is the the whole issue of partnership and how do we how do we have meaningful partnerships where the partnerships aren't basically us with our western strategies and money and background going to other parts of the world asking for people to join in with what we're doing that's not true partnership really is it so that's a big issue I guess um some of the issues we we certainly saw firsthand in Indonesia and other parts of Southeast Asia particularly Muslim world um, would relate to issues about how how we communicate the gospel to people from different faith backgrounds. Um, so one example would be, say, uh, debates about the ins- what's called the insider movements. That is, to what extent should people professing faith in Christ remain within or leave their Muslim community? Um, there are other uh, other uh, strategies and approaches, uh, particularly in the Muslim world, but more broadly, things like disciple-making movements, quite big hot topics in mission world these days. Um, I could talk more about either of those, but I don't want to ramble on too long. No, no, I'm, I'm interested in the disciple thing. Can you unpack that? Sure. Yeah, so dis- disciple-making movements really, um, it's all linked to... Um, church planting and movement kind of methodology, which sets out to say we we long to see people's saved um, from areas where there have been few people saved before, where there are few churches. 
but uh, methodologically, it's firmly committed to rapid multiplication. Um, so the idea would be that um, um, somebody would go to a place where the gospel is yet to go or the church is yet to be established. They would go with God's word and right behind this element of the process. They would go in a very prayerful sense again. That's a really commendable thing. And they would go to um, different households, go door to door, um, seeing who was interested basically in the good news of the Lord Jesus, dropping things into conversation about their own faith. They would then seek to start a household Bible study. Um, again, we want to say a big amen to opening scripture with people. Um, but with the very clear intention that very, very rapidly they would leave that group. Um, those in the group would take over, lead the group themselves, seeking intentionally to see other groups spring out of it. Um, there's lots to be commended about the approach, uh, the use of scripture, the belief that the spirit uh, will open blind eyes as scripture is read and studied together. But our experience was that, again, things can be taken to extremes sometimes. Um, for example, we, you know, we, we heard of situations where people were, were leading these groups who were not yet converted. And you think, well, someone's been a Muslim for 30 or 40 years and they're not yet converted. They're going to read scripture through a certain lens. And what about the place of, of leaders that New Testament talks about? What about the place of maturity? Um, it doesn't seem to be a big rush for speed in the New Testament. You know, it's about uh, seeing disciples made. Uh, that, can take, that can take time. The other big concern I guess we had in our context was that often the local church was pu pushed to one side. Um, so in Indonesia, that whilst they're a minority, there's a, a significant uh, Christian church. Um, some of those proponents of disciple-making movements would have been arguing that, well, you look, look at these local churches, they're not really engaging with the Muslim majority, so we're going to do our own thing. Um, and that was a, a real sadness to us. You think again, okay, these are God's, these are God's people. This is, this is Christ's bride in Indonesia. We want to work uh, alongside them, with them, through them, um, not to have them to one side. And so sometimes we, we'd see um, or hear of groups that were, were meeting with no intention of trying to, uh, to join in with their brothers and sisters. Now, I recognise that there, there were huge difficulties in that happening in reality because of the, the big tensions between different religious communities in Indonesia. Uh, but the idea that from the very beginning there wouldn't be an interaction between new believers and the existing believers uh, in very close proximity that was that was a real sadness to us. Yeah, again, <laughs> the irony is uh, disciple-making movements aren't really designed for making disciples. That's an irony, isn't it? Yeah. Um, can again just comment very briefly on the insider movement. Um, I mean, it's tough. Folk, folk talk about Islam, and I think people forget that there's a massive diversity in, in Islam. You have Saudi Islam, you've got Asian Islam, you've got Sunni, you've got Shia, you've got Sufi. There's all sorts, of, you know, it's as broad as, as Christianity. Yeah. Um, maybe one element that's true of most of Islam is it's very community community orientated mm -hmm. and it is you know we cannot overestimate how difficult it is uh, even or especially in the diaspora for someone to leave that community yeah uh, to join 
a church, to leave the mosque and join the church. Mm -hmm. So a lot of folk get round that through what's called the insider movement. Yeah. Uh, have you got a comment on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge issue and one that, you know, sincere believers come to very different conclusions on. Um, so those who are big proponents of the insider movement would say that, yeah, people should remain um, in, their, in their communities. And in one sense, you want to say, again, a big amen to that. You want to remain within their family groups, but the uh, strong proponents of insider movements would say, no, they should also stay within the uh, religious elements of their community and culture. So they should continue to be part of the mosque community. They should continue to recite the creeds, the Muslim creeds, but in their own minds, knowing that they're, in a sense, doing them to Jesus, not to Muhammad. Um, I mean, they're all, personally speaking, I have all sorts of reservations about, about insider movements. Again, um, what's the place of the local church? Um, what's the place of, um, where, 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 you know, what, is, what is our definition of conversion? Um, is there a clarity for conversion? We had a, a household lady once who'd been influenced by um, some other workers who'd been in Indonesia. Um, in their minds, would be a believer, um, the Lord knows, doesn't he, the heart of a, of a lady like that. But in our mind, she was just very confused about, about what she was. Was she a Muslim? Was she a Christian? Um, very difficult. I think as well, you want to ask the question, where, where, what are you left with in 20, 30 years' time with an insider movement? So you've got a group of people who um, professing Jesus Christ as Lord in some way, uh, but continuing to be a part of the mosque community. Um, 20, 30 years time, are you left with a Christian body of believers? Are you left with people who reverted back to Islam? Are you left with something that's syncretistic? Um, and just huge, huge reservations about some of those issues. What I found very interesting, one final comment was, I didn't, of, of all the Indonesian pastors I got to know and uh, other believers in Indonesia, I, I didn't meet any national pastors who were pushing insider movements as a way to reach out to Muslim neighbours. It was all imported from Western uh, mission practitioners. And that to me was just quite striking that here's something that is purporting to be um, about keeping people within their communities, but it's in a sense almost being pushed by people from the outside. Um, and so I had, the, I had the privilege of knowing some local Indonesian pastors and what was their approach to Muslim evangelism. I mean, without, without being pointed or anything, it was very simple. They, they said they would help people to move to places in communities where there was a Muslim majority, of which that is the majority of Indonesia, and they would get to know people and befriend them and speak the gospel with them. And that many of them faced huge consequences as a result. When people came to faith, some were um, kicked out of their communities. Um, we, we had a, a link with our, we were part of a Baptist church in our city. There was a, a branch church in another part of the region. Um, and there was a, a village of people uh, had needed to be formed um, because of the number of people who'd come to faith, but then had been uh, rejected by their communities. Um, so the cost was very real. And again, inside of movement guys would look at that and say, well, that's the problem. You've got this village of new converts and they're no longer in their, in their home, their hometown, their home uh, communities. Um, this is the reality of, of outreach amongst Muslims in that part of the world. Is there are no easy answers. 
Yeah, Michael, our time is going. I mean, we got a lot of feedback about the timings of these podcasts. Some folks say, oh, it should be 20 minutes. You can't say nothing in 20 minutes. <laughs> Others say they should be over an hour. You never get to any depth. Uh, I have sympathy for both. Listen, we, we've spoken about so much thing, much in our 40 minutes here. Uh, local church culture, uh, Muslim evangelism, the call to mission issues, you know, so... Part of what we do in the podcast is just to sow seeds in people's minds so that they can think through the issues that we raise. Michael, thank you so much. We will talk again because I, I want to unpack so many of these issues. Uh, thank you for spending time with us during uh, lockdown. Pleasure. I'm not going too far right now. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, yeah, thank, thank you. you me, David. It's a pleasure to be to be on with you today. Thank we you. wish you every blessing in the work of UFM Worldwide. If you are in Scotland, you want to know more about UFM Worldwide, get in touch with Rory McLean. Many of you and yeah. many of us will know who he is. Just Google it and you will find him. Thank you so much. Have a great day.